we need to pray that uh, the crisis pregnancy centers across the country would see an increase of visits. Like that has been one of the things in the last 50 years that has been, that's been huge, huge. And we support the Crisis Pregnancy Center up in Colville. We have for years. I think since it started, if I'm not mistaken, some of you guys, uh, I, think we've, I think we've supported it right from the get-go. Probably one of the charter uh, uh, members of support for the Crisis Pregnancy Center up in Colville. But we need to pray that there's an increase there. Uh, because when there's an increase there, when these, when these uh, uh, young folks you know, who find themselves with child and they don't know what to do, and then they show up there, that's, that's where the ministry starts for many, many of them. You know, that's the first time that they hear anything positive about what's going on uh, with them. That's the first time they, they hear any encouragement uh, at all uh, that, is, that points them in a positive light. So we need to be praying that these crisis pregnancy centers would see an increase of visits and, and that the Lord can work through them through their ministries, um, that there won't be this violence and outbreaks and rage and looting. Pray that that just, uh, just doesn't happen. Um, I know that seems, I don't know, maybe it just seems like inevitable in a way and we kind of get discouraged. I know I do in, in, in that way. It just seems like anytime anybody kicks any kind of a bucket over in this country, you know, boom, Twitter's on fire, you know, cities are on fire and there's this big rage and People need to settle down. Um, <laughs> they need to be a little bit more thoughtful about what's going on and what they're up to. Uh, the main thing that I think that we should be praying for in all this, and I'll just kind of close off my thoughts on the Roe versus Wade thing, because this is really where change happens. We need to be praying that people's hearts will be changed because of who God is, right? Not just about a current topic. And, and we kind of looked at this last week when we looked at King Josiah. We saw he, uh, as, as he was brought in through, you know, all of this carnage and chaos and, and his dad was assassinated. So he becomes king at a young age. And, and uh, then as he got into his 20s, he brings in these uh, reforms where he just rids Judah of, uh, of all of this idol worship. And he brings these great reforms, and he brings back uh, true temple worship. After reading the book of the law, that was kind of his conviction point. He brings in all these reforms to get rid of idolatry and return the peoples to worshiping God. And we read there in Chronicles where it says their return was in pretense. They were faking it. As long as he was there, as long as that's what he was doing as the king, that's fine and great. But the minute that Josiah dies, and the next guy comes along, and he's the leader, boom, they were right back into idolatry. And the key to uh, true reform and, and, and true uh, change in our country, especially as we think about this week, is that people's hearts would be changed because of who God is, not just the current reforms. Maybe that's a launching point. Okay, that's fine. But that people's hearts would be changed because of who God is and what He's done for them. We've been uh, <clears throat> looking at a variety of different men uh, through the Old Testament primarily. We're going to get into the New Testament. And we've been asking this question. The, the series is really centered around this question, how can we thrive in a decaying culture? And I, I wrote that word thrive in there intentionally. It wasn't just by accident. Uh, a lot of times when we would ask that question, 
and especially if we had any kind of a cynical nature like I can have real easily, we wouldn't say thrive. We would say, how can we just survive in, in, in the culture that we're in? How can we survive in a decaying culture? Uh, but I don't think that we're called just to survive, just to get by. You know, that somehow our snorkel in life is just, you know, a fraction out of the water uh, all the time. No, I think that we're called to thrive in Christ. We're called to be overcomers. We're called overcomers. And so how do we thrive in a decaying culture? And really, what does that mean? Like, how can, how can we describe that? What does a post-Christian culture look like? And it's interesting that I asked that question after, you know, it seems like such a, a momentous shift, and of course it was a momentous shift this week. But what does it mean when I say a post-Christian culture? What does it mean, what am I getting at when I say we need to thrive in a decaying culture? And as we look at these different guys, if I can use a sports metaphor, for, I would use it this way. Is, uh, this is what it means. It means that as Christ followers, we don't have home field advantage anymore. That's what it means. That means in a sense, we're always playing on somebody else's turf. We're playing in somebody else's backyard. We don't have the home field advantage that Christians have had for generations and generations in this country. I don't think that that's true anymore. I don't believe that that's the way it is anymore. So in a sense, we're playing on somebody else's court. We don't have the home field advantage. Uh, and it used to be, I can remember, uh, in fact, <clears throat> it's kind of an interesting story here, but uh, I remember, I, I don't know, how old were we? when we, we went to the Billy Graham crusade at Joe Albee Stadium in Spokane. Ten? Maybe ten? I'm guessing ten. Let's go with ten. Maybe I'm older than you think. Were, were you there when I was born? For those of you who are there new, this is my mom. All right, now we got that straight. Uh, and I can remember, even as a kid, uh, the Billy Graham Crusades were televised, weren't they? On, on you know, major networks. That was very common, very normal. And the Christian point of view was at the very least respected. At the very least respected. I can remember going to that uh, uh, <clears throat> crusade down there. I remember sitting uh, just a few rows away from uh, uh, Bessie Bowe, Don Bowe's mom. Uh, Don Bowe's the guy that started this church, is first pastor of this church, and still lives in the area. And so, I just say all that to say, to give a little backdrop, we, do, we don't have that type of home field advantage. When was the last time you saw a big crusade televised on a major network? Can you think back to when it was? I don't even know. But it used to be commonplace. That's what I'm talking about. We've lost that home field advantage. We've lost that general spot of respect in the culture. It's not that way anymore. The respect is gone. Uh, the Christian values now are openly mocked which is really kind of a good setup for today as we look at the biblical events during the Babylonian exile where those that were uh, cast into and, and captured really and sent to Babylon uh, where their belief system was constantly kind of under attack. Last week we looked at this chart. Michaela, do you have that chart up there? If you looked at this chart, <clears throat> again I hijacked this off the internet but I really like it. But if you kind of look at from 2000 B.C. to 1000 B.C., so 1,000 years uh, for Ab from Abraham to, to David. Now, everybody's pointing and looking towards the Messiah. That's why you have the dotted line that runs up like it does 
everybody's looking for the one that would come, the promised one. We, we see that even clear back in the first few chapters of Genesis, uh, the promise of the seed that would come and, and deal with things. And then you have the drop-off from David down to where it says Babylon down there. So a thousand years to build up to the divinic kingdom, 500 years to destroy it. In that, you had civil war after Solomon's reign. You had the nation split in half, north and south, north being called Israel, south being called Judah. And of all of the leaders, there was only two really good kings, Hezekiah and Josiah. We looked at Josiah last week. And then just a short time after that, um, where Israel has already been drawn into captivity, then Judah enters into captivity. And Judah was sent to this pagan culture uh, to really to rid them of idolatry. It seems kind of strange, but they struggled with idolatry. It was kind of this come and go thing. And like I said, Hezekiah and and Josiah were really the only two kings that really strongly addressed the idolatry in in Judah. Uh, But God... God takes this nation, and he, he, he looks at it as one, not one, one divided in half, and he says, all right, we're going to deal with this. This is kind of Mark's paraphrase. We're going to deal with you, your issue of idolatry, and guess what he does? He sends them to one of the worst pagan nations in of all of history. It's the strangest of things, and you know what it reminds me of? And you young kids have no idea of this probably. But when I was a kid, this was a story that was passed around in our generation. When I was a kid, if you got caught sneaking one of your mom's cigarettes, you know what the punishment was? She made you smoke the whole pack. Right? If you took a pinch out of dad's snooze can and he found out about it, he made you put the whole thing in, his mo- in your mouth until you started puking. It was worse than the spanking. It was worse than the, than the spanking by a long shot. And I thought about that crazy example, but that's in a sense, kind of, in a way, kind of how God dealt with the nation of Israel. All right, you want idolatry? You're going to get the whole thing. Aren't I glad I had the parents I had? Now, I'm not saying that this example happened to me personally, because don't, don't, my mom didn't smoke. We, we need confirmation of that. Now, I'm not saying it happened to me. I'm not saying that I didn't get in trouble for many things. And, I'm, and I will say that I've ate my fair share of a bar of soap. Uh, get your mouth washed out for swearing. Exactly right. But God says, hey, you want to deal with, uh, you want to dive into idolatry? Here you go. You get a hook, line, and sinker. So now they're in this pagan culture trying to figure out what to do. How could they thrive then in this culture? How could they, how could they, uh, what was the recipe from here on out? We understand the judgment of God, and if you read through uh, the prophets specifically, you'll see uh, that that they kept saying, this is what's going to happen, this is what's going to happen, this is what's going to happen. Right, and so then here they go. Now that they're there, how do they, how do they thrive? How do they, how do they make it? How do they move forward? I'd invite you to open your Bibles to the first chapter of the book of Daniel, because I believe that Daniel and his companions give us 
an excellent blueprint, excuse me, an excellent blueprint when it comes to thriving in a decaying culture. You notice that the Babylonians are not around anymore. So actually, if you look, at, if you look back at all of the uh, sermon series uh, each individual week, uh, none of those cultures still are rolling today. This is another one. Uh, there's people that live there, but they're not Babylonian. Daniel chapter 1, we'll just read, uh, we'll just read a few verses. Daniel says this, In the third year of the reign of <clears throat> Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave uh, Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the articles into the, treasures, uh, into the treasure house of his God. Then the king instructed as a penes, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. Today I want to talk about three aspects of conforming to culture. There's kind of three aspects that the book of Daniel kind of talks about in, 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 in conforming. And, and, and now these guys, and he, and he talks about it right there. He talks about, bring, hey, make sure you get some of the best out of this culture that we've just conquered. Make sure you get some of the best, the, the brightest, you know, uh, the high IQ kids, the good looking ones. Make sure you get them, and we're going to specifically focus in on them. There's three aspects here. The first aspect is isolation. If you're going to conform people to a culture, you need to get them isolated. You need to get people alone. And the goal of isolation is to break up a person's normal routines. That's the goal of isolation. It breaks up all of their normal routines that they were raised with. All of the, everything that they understand, it all gets kind of broken and fractured. In fact, the Romans, in Roman times, when, when Rome came in and conquered a city or an area, uh, but specifically some of the bigger cities, they would leave it desolate for a hundred years. They'd just, they'd just leave it completely wiped out, down to the rocks, and then a hundred years later, they had a plan that they would come back in and rebuild it. That's not necessarily the case with Babylon. But the idea is kind of similar, where the first aspect to conforming culture is isolation. Get people alone. How do you do that? Here's how it's done. Three things. You cut their spiritual roots. You get into what they, what they believe. You put an axe to it. You cut their ties to their heritage. And you cut the connection to their promised land. That's what happened to these young fellas, or at least that was the attempt. And instead of all of that, instead of everything that they were raised with, you place them in a new environment with different morals and ethics. And the goal is, is that if you can get them comfortable in a new setting, then they're going to adapt a lot faster. That was, the, that was the blueprint that Nebuchadnezzar had for these four young guys. Hey, cut off everything that they were raised with, uh, uh, get rid of their spiritual roots, uh, get rid of their heritage, 
uh, get them away from the land that, that their God said that was theirs, get them into a new environment, entice them into service, treat them well, and the whole thing will happen at an accelerated rate. Daniel goes on to say, look at verse 5, and the king appointed them <clears throat> for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank. And three, years of <clears throat> and three years of training for them, so that at the end of that time, they might serve before the king. Three years of training, everything that they wanted from the king's table. The second way to conform culture is to indoctrinate the people. And, and uh, that's changing what they believe. That's part of the goal. Changing what they believe is true. You're going to isolate them, then you're going to indoctrinate them. The overarching goal was not to, to integrate uh, Judaism into the Babylonian culture, but to eradicate it. That was Nebuchadnezzar's goal. It wasn't like we do in America, and we pretty much say, come on in, whatever you want to believe, how, whatever faith you are, uh, hopefully if you do it the right way, <laughs> fill out all the right paperwork like our ancestors all had to, then here you go, right? Come on in. And you're free to worship however you want to. You're free to live wherever you want to. You're free to work wherever you want to. You're free to own property if you want to. You have all of these natural freedoms. That's our natural grid as Americans to look through. That wasn't the grid that these guys were looking through. That wasn't their experience. The goal here was to eradicate Judaism, to work it out of these guys, and they had a three-year plan to accomplish it. Nebuchadnezzar was willing to invest time and money into transforming Judah's brightest men into Babylon's smartest men. You guys get that? That was Nebuchadnezzar's goal. Bring the smartest ones they got, especially if they're young. We're going to transform them. We're going to switch them from one culture to the next. I'm going to invest the time and the money into the process, and I'm going to take these smart guys and make them our smart guys. I'm going to take these good-looking guys, and I'm going to make them our good-looking guys. That's how it's done. That's how it does. And this happens by changing somebody's core beliefs. It happens by changing somebody's core beliefs. I've said for years that when, when we get pressed into a situation, say you're in a car wreck, uh, say you, uh, you, you, you show up at home and your neighbor's house is on, on fire, whatever the case is, but when you're really, really pressed in a situation, you will respond according to your true core beliefs. Right? If you truly, truly are a Christ follower, you're going to respond in that likeness. First thing that's going to happen is you're going to start praying. And you're going to start seeking the Lord. What do I do here? What do I do here? What do I do here? But if that's not true of you, if that's not true of me, and I've seen it because I've showed up on a lot of car wrecks over the years as a firefighter, as a volunteer here at Addy, that, that people respond to what's going on by their core beliefs. And so sometimes you're going to show up and somebody will be sitting on the side of the road praying for what's going on and hoping that their friend in the car is okay. But other times you're going to have people that are throwing rocks and cussing and screaming and carrying on because that's what they truly believe. That's, what, that's who they really are, right? And so changing a person's core beliefs then in the matter of conforming culture becomes a big deal. Look at verse 6. Daniel goes on to say there in verse 6, Now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, 
Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. To them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. The third thing in conforming culture, so you're going to isolate them. You're going to uh, uh, change core beliefs. The third thing is, is you're going to deal with their identification. You're going to change not only what people believe about God, but you're going to change what people believe about themselves. You're going to change what people believe about themselves, and you do that by changing their names. See, all of these names of these four guys all had very specific uh, uh, <clears throat> purpose. There was, there was, there's purpose in a name. And when a name is changed, so is the person's identity. Let me give you an example. Daniel, the name Daniel means God is my judge. God is my judge. When you see an E-L at the end of a name, L, that's God, right? When you see a, uh, what's the other one? Hananiah, so I-A-H, that's Lord tagged onto the back of somebody's name there. So Daniel, God is my judge, was changed to Belshazzar, meaning Bel's prince. Hananiah, meaning beloved by the Lord, was changed to Shadrach, meaning illuminated by sun god. Mishael, meaning who is as God, was changed to Meshach, which they think, uh, this one is a little trickier to diagnose, which may mean who is like a shack, which some believe was a Babylonian goddess corresponding to Ishtar or to Venus. And Azariah, meaning the Lord is my help, was changed to Abednego, meaning servant of Negro. These boys were all raised with names that had a, and, ha, and they had a tangible sense of identity and purpose as Jews. Like when they were given a name, that's, that, that describes who you are. That describes and it, and it forms who you are when you're given a name. And part of the, the change of the culture, part of the influence of Babylon, part of the blueprint was to come in and say, hey, we can't let them keep thinking of themselves in the way that they've always thought of themselves. Which is interesting because if you read the whole book of Daniel, Daniel will always refer to him as Daniel, the one called Belshazzar. It's an interesting uh, little tidbit out of the book of Daniel. Daniel always refers to him according to his, himself according to his original name. He doesn't give in to it. He doesn't dive into that. But they were raised with these tangible sense of identity and purpose as Jews. And the enemy will always attack. I can't emphasize that enough. The enemy will always attack us at a critical spot. And that's our identity as Christians. That's our identity as Christians. That's what's under, that's always what's under the heat. That's what's always under review in our culture. That's always what's under attack. You read, if you turn on the History Channel at all during, you know, uh, the lead up to Easter, or the lead up to Christmas time or whatever, you're always going to see these questioning type of, of shows that come on. It's like, really, did this? And, and they're constantly questioning. They're always coming under attack. Christ is always under attack. So what's the defense for this assault that's happening here to these 
four Jewish guys. How did they respond? I'm going to show you where they responded in two ways. They responded in conviction, and they responded being dependent upon the sovereignty of God. Notice the rest of the chapter as I read it. There's an intersection here between God's plan and the conviction that these four young guys had. Verse 8, But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. Right? Talking about the king's food. Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. He, he put out a plea, put out a, uh, a request, said, hey, I, I don't, I don't want to eat this stuff. I don't want to drink this. Verse 9, now God had brought Daniel into the favor and the goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. There's God's sovereignty at work. So Daniel purposed in his heart. He was a man of conviction. All the while, God was working in somebody else's heart to start showing a little favor toward this guy. Similar to our story that we looked at two weeks ago about Joseph. Verse 10 says, And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, I fear the Lord my king who has appointed you food and drink, for why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? Then, <clears throat> then you would endanger my head before the king. In other words, uh, no, you're going to eat and drink what you're told to, otherwise, you know, I'm going to uh, get a tight shave. Verse 11, So Daniel said to the steward of whom the chief of the eunuchs had said over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah, please test your servants for ten days and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you and the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies. And as you see fit, so deal with your servants. Again, Daniel putting it in God's hands ultimately. Verse 14, so he consented with them in this matter and tested them ten days. And at the end of ten days, their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. Thus the steward took away their portion of delicacies and the wine which they were to drink and gave them vegetables. And verse 17 says, And as for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now at the end of the days when the king had said <clears throat> that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. Then the king interviewed them, and among them all, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they served before the king. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all of the magicians and astrologers who were in all of his realm. Thus Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. Notice the results. They stayed true to God. Here's that combination between conviction and God's sovereignty, God's working in the backstory. They stayed true to God. God brought favor their way, and there was a test. And God's wisdom prevailed. That's kind of the, the, the quick and, and, and summary of it all, right? That in the end, they were way better off because they stayed true to God. When God calls us to walk in faith and trust Him, there's always going to be a test. It's just the nature of life, right? You grow up, you're, you start school, you're constantly being tested. 
You're constantly being tested all through life. Uh, for those of you that are still young enough to have the pleasure of still being in school, and I do say that facetiously, of course, um, school was a huge distraction to my day when I was a young person. So um, I want to throw a downer out there for all the kids. Um, you don't quit getting tested in life once you're out of school. I know that's a downer. Just hang on. The rest of the sermon will be exciting. All right, here we go. There's three tests in the book of Daniel. We just looked at the first one, the king's food test, where Daniel comes up with a plan, right? He has a godly appeal to Nebuchadnezzar, and he says, hey, uh, just give us this. We don't want that. Just give us vegetables and water at the end of 10 days. Let's say 10 days is not a very long time, really, uh, for this type of test. But whatever was happening, God was making it happen, right? And God worked them into a place of leadership and a place of influence, even in this crooked and pagan culture. The second test, the second test is the test of bowing to idols. <clears throat> and the third test is where Daniel's praying to God, his heavenly Father. We've looked at the first one. Let's look at the next two. If you flip to Daniel chapter 3, it tells the events of the second test, uh, where in, in the meantime, and there's, I'm going to try to fill in a lot of verses with just a short summary. After this had happened, now Daniel and, and these three guys are in an uh, influential place in Babylon, right? The king Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and in this dream, he sees this big image, and he's looking to figure out what the interpretation of this dream is. If you grew up in Sunday school, you saw this on the flannel ground, you know what I'm talking about, right? So God says, uh, gives Daniel the interpretation. He says, here's what this dream means, right? Here's what this dream means. Daniel gets the opportunity to share that with Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, he builds this huge statue, massive gold statue, 90 feet high, 10 feet wide. They say that Actually, the base is still uh, detectable, none of the rest of it, but it's this massive gold statue. And after it was built, a decree was ordered that when the instruments are played, they had a select number of instruments, and when these instruments were played, these musical instruments, that everybody was supposed to stop what they're doing, and they're supposed to bow to the idol, right? They have to stop and turn and worship the idol because Nebuchadnezzar himself... Uh, thought that himself to be God. The result of refusing to do this was to faith, face certain death in probably one of the most horrific ways, and that's you get tossed into a furnace. So <clears throat> not much escaping the fire. It's all consuming. And the reality was is that Daniel and his friends refused, and they're kind of ratted out for it. Pick it up in Daniel chapter 3. Notice their actions there. Daniel chapter 3, verse 12. There are certain Jews, this is the report about them to the king. There are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. In other words, they're refusing to turn to your idol. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. <clears throat> now we, of course, if you know, like I said, if you grew up in Sunday school and remember the flannel graph story, you know what's going to happen. These guys stand on their convictions. 
They say, we're not going to worship you no matter what happens, king. No matter what happens. If we die, we die. But in the meantime, we're not going to worship you. We're going to worship the true living God. We're going to worship the God of our ancestors. We're going to worship the God of promise. We're going to worship Creator God. So they stand on their convictions. Nebuchadnezzar is so mad that he has the furnace, the heat of the furnace, cranked up that it starts to kill the people that are throwing more wood or whatever they put in the fire. You know what I envision? I don't know, this is just kind of crazy. <clears throat> but you know on Highway 20, when you're going up over highway, Tiger Highway, and you dropped in, there's a, I don't know what the, what the road, but you drop down in that one deep canyon, and there used to be a sawmill there, and still there today, if you look real quick, because the trees are starting to grow, you'll see this huge steel cone sticking up in the air. You guys follow me? Okay. You know what that was for? That was where they took all the waste wood out of the sawmill, and back in the day, they'd just burn it. Like when I was a kid, when we'd travel to Colville, Vaughan still had the old burner going when I was a kid, and that was one of the highlights was to see all of the sparks and everything shooting out of the top. I think about that image, those old, I can't remember what they're called. Wigwam burner. Vaughan's had that mill. Young people never forget, it's great to have an old logger in the audience. Fills in all the blanks. These three guys get thrown into the furnace. And what do you suppose happened? God shows up. Daniel chapter 3, verse 23 through 25. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down, bound into the midst of the burning and fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? And they answered to the king and said, True, O king, like their life is on the line at that moment. The king says, Look, he answered, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt. And the form of the fourth one is like the Son of God. See, this story isn't about the three young guys. It's not about the three Jewish guys, per se. Not really. I mean, it is in a sense. It's not about just these guys that are willing to die for their beliefs. This story is about a loving God who shows up in the midst of a trial. And I paused in my notes as I was writing this just to ask this question. When was the last time God showed up in the midst of your trial? Like, is that a regular occasion? We just try to keep just shoulder down, do whatever it takes to solve your own dilemma when really what we need is we need God to show up. That's when we know that we're being tested. That's when we know that we're operating by faith or by fear. By faith or by effort. Right? By faith or by anything else. Our own wits, the money that we have, right? whatever it is. But the test always boils down to, no matter what it is, it always boils down to these components. It always boils down to, are you willing to, de- to, to totally depend upon God with everything and let Him just show up in the midst of the crisis? Let me tell you, thrown into a furnace, that's a crisis. Like there's not many crises that get bigger 
or more intense than that, right? I mean, you think that being in a deposition is hot. When was the last time that you trusted God to just show up? And notice what the king had to say. So skip down a few more verses. Verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him, and they have frustrated the king's word and yielded their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree that any people, nation, or language which speaks anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut to pieces, and their houses should be made as ash heap, because there's no God who can deliver like this. He was absolutely right. He's not far, like just from these comments, this guy's not far away from, you know, really getting it. But he saw with his own eyes what somebody else believed and he watched, them, he watched them walk it out. He watched them walk out their core beliefs in the midst of crisis. And God showed up. Now Daniel was tested also. In the sake of time, I'll move quickly. Daniel was tested also. Daniel's test comes in chapter 6. And by this time in the storyline, the Medes and the Persians have conquered Babylon. So you kind of have this whole change of, of national rule. Uh, Daniel kind of retained that place as governor in the new kingdom that he had in the previous one. And Daniel chapter 6, verses 3 through 5 says, then, <clears throat> then this Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and the satraps because of an excellent spirit that was in him, giving you a little context of where things are at. So not only was he a good governor, but he was the best governor uh, because of what God was doing him in him. And the king gave... And the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. That's how good he was. And the king was thinking, maybe he could just run the whole show. It worked for Joseph, maybe it worked for Daniel. Verse 4, so the governors and the satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find no charge or fault because he was faithful. Nor was there any error or fault found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. Sound familiar? If you read the Gospels, right? That whole mindset is exactly, it's exactly what the Pharisees were trying to trip Jesus up with, right? We, we can't find any fault in him on the externals, so let's try to find fault with him on the internals. Right? Let's try to trip him up here. Let's try to dig in and, and trying to get him to contradict himself, contradict his own beliefs, contradict his own uh, way of following God. And so as a trap, they sponsored this binding law for 30 days that anyone who prays to any god other than King Darius, who was the king at that time, then would be cast into the lion's den as punishment. Again, not a real good outcome on the outside, right? Verse 10 says, Now when Daniel knew that this writing was signed, obviously he knew about it as it was going on, he went home. And in his upper room, with his windows open towards Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day, and he prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since the early days. A few things that are remarkable here. 
Daniel never changed his, his daily routine. Just because he was under scrutiny, he didn't do anything different. He just stayed with the same routine. You could say that he was doing his devotions. You could say that he was, had his quiet time. You could call it whatever. He was praying. And he didn't change up his routine at all because he was under fire. He strayed true to who God had created him to be. And these guys that plotted against Daniel were watching. They're the ones that ratted him out. They're the ones that uh, created this, this trap for him. And so as you know the old story, so in the lion den he goes. And King Darius, who was really in turmoil over Daniel, the word says that he couldn't sleep and he fasted all night and he headed out early to check on Daniel. When he gets there to the lion's den, Daniel chapter 6, verses 20 says, The king spoke, saying to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? There was dead silence. No, there wasn't dead silence. He's asking a question, and it's this long, lengthy, drawn-out question, knowing that he's probably already, you know, being digested by these lions. But he asks this long question. Notice what he says in there. Notice what he says in the question. Daniel, servant of the living God, he identifies who Daniel is, who Daniel really is. Has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? See, this guy was nibbling around the edges. He was curious. And then Daniel says to the king, verse 21, O king, live forever. My God has sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths so that they have not hurt me because I was found innocent before him. And also, O king, I've done no wrong before you. Daniel's friends had these definitive moments. If the worship team wants to come on up, we'll close out. Daniel and his friends had these definitive moments, these, these points where they're tested, these points where their faith comes right to the front. It comes right to the top of their lives. And it's sink or swim, literally. It's, it's either God's going to show up and I'm going to survive uh, <clears throat> in this moment, or it's not going to happen, right? And the book of Hebrews talks about this moment kind of in a, in a sort of way of whether we're trusting in God, whether we're living by faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 33 and 34, describes those that live by faith. And there's even a few descriptions here from the book of Daniel who are kind of worked in, and I would encourage you to read the whole chapter, but verse 33 starts off speaking of all these different saints that have lived by faith. Verse 33 says, Who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, and quenched the violence of fire. They've escaped the edge of the sword, out of the weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the enemies of aliens. Come back to our original question for this series, how do we thrive in a decaying culture? We thrive by walking like these Jewish young men walked. We continue to walk upstream, right? If you think of culture as a, as a flowing stream coming down at you, you walk upstream. 
Like if you've, those of you that have watched The, uh, the Chosen, uh, and, and nothing on that show is done by accident, including the graphics in the intro and the outro of each episode where they have fish swimming in a circle, and the fish are all white, right? They're, all, they're white fish are swimming one way, and then they, have the, then they have the other fish swimming, the other colored fish swimming the other way. And that's what Christianity is like. That's what thriving in a, a decaying culture is like for us. Is we just keep swimming upstream of culture. And then as you do that, as I do that, as we embark on this life's journey upstream, fighting against the, the tide, as it were, fighting against uh, the pressure coming downhill on us, guess what's going to happen? People are going to start asking questions, saying, why, why are you going that way? Why, why are you different than all the other fish that are going this way? Why are you going that way? Why are you swimming counterclockwise? They're going to start asking those questions. That's your open door. That's your window of opportunity. That's your, that's your moment. That's your moment, believers. That's your moment to share who Christ is. That's your moment to say, this is what's important. This is what's changed my life. And this is the only thing that I have to stand on. That's how we thrive in these decaying cultures. Resist the draw by culture to get you isolated, to change your beliefs, knowing that the tests, the trials are going to come. But we're called to live by faith, and we're called to live our faith out with conviction and with purpose and with intentionality. Let's rise as we worship, as we close out the service.